You are listening to TMB DOS. They must be destroyed on sight. Discussions of an adult nature, adult language, and spoilers for the films discussed are most likely. Still on board? Come on in. Enjoy your stay. They must be destroyed on sight! Okay, welcome back to They Must Be Destroyed on Site, episode 119. We have to figure out what we're going to do for 125 if we keep up the uh, tradition of doing something special every 25 episodes or so. That'll be uh, something to figure out. But uh, I'm your host, Lee. You can't prove you're innocent running away, Russell. And I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel. Came a long way to be buried, Harper. How are you doing, sir? I'm not buried yet. So, you know, at least there's that. Yeah, I I was gonna make a joke about uh, alcoholic floozies, but you know why you know why why get why go there this quickly? Yeah, we'll, we'll sort of smoothly transition into it. That's the best way to really handle the alcoholic floozy is to smoothly transition in. You know, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> that that is the appropriate uh, preposition to the yeah. you know alcoholic nymphomaniac floozy. <laughs> and I use the term floozy over and over again. I use it with the utmost respect. Yeah. Well, that that seems to be the uh, the correct nomenclature of the period, at, at least. So yeah, yeah, yeah. no, yeah. It was, I was I'm really I'm speaking 1950s ease here. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So we're doing a special little episode here. We're going to be covering three films by a particular actress named Mary Dorothy Maloney, or known as Dorothy Malone her most famous of her stage names anyway, who just recently died here in 2018 in January at age 93, 10 days shy of 94, actually. So uh, yeah, very much. Yeah. yeah we uh, kind of fell in love with her when we did our big sleep episode, which is one of my favorite ones we've ever done. So yeah. definitely go back and uh, check that one out. If you didn't listen to that one yet. And, uh, and we both noticed her and then in just sort of the cursory research that we do for these. And uh, that's really the kind of research we do for this is cursory. Um, mm-hmm. Very much so. I discovered she was still alive and that she had a long career and said, oh, we should one day come back and do some more for films. Uh, you know, two years later, uh, she dies and we go, well, geez, maybe this is like the opportunity we have to film <laughs> the film. So yeah. um, I picked, uh, I kind of just went through her Wikipedia page and like picked three. But I mean, she worked for almost 50 years. Yeah. Uh, you know, she was a working actress for almost 50 years. And uh, we'll definitely kind of, uh, there some other stuff kind of pinged on my radar as we were uh, kind of going through this, or at least this kind of, we were kind of planning this. Uh, so uh, I think we'll definitely kind of veer towards some more Dorothy Malone in the future. Oh, definitely. Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, um, yeah, I'm but, just kind of just kind of giving my own like half of this summary here, uh, not yeah. to take over the hosting duties, but yeah, this is something was, I've been looking forward to for a while, honestly, because I really yeah. haven't seen uh, you know anything that she was in. But we both fell in love with her in The Big Sleep, and she literally is on the screen for like two minutes in that movie. Yeah, but and, she uh, does so much with that like two minutes, <laughs> and it was very clear like this is someone we really need to kind of revisit. And uh, I think it was a uh, pretty uh, a pretty good idea. I think yeah. it ended up being uh, very rewarding. Um, in a lot of different ways. So, yeah, her her role in the Big Sleep, just a small role, is basically a clerk at a bookstore or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, was and just the brief 
exchanges she has with uh, Humphrey Bogart, uh, including the implied exchanges off screen. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's barely implied. That that's uh, that's it's pretty overt, and uh, partly yeah. it's direction and partly it's writing, but a whole lot of it is just Dorothy Malone being amazing. So yeah, but that sort of made her a star. She was a contract player of RKO. Uh, then she went to Warner Brothers. That's where she got her big break, basically started really getting big meaty roles after that. And then she slipped into B-movie obscurity for a while before she came back and won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in one of the films we're covering tonight. So uh, yes. so we, we will get into this, but uh, we do have quite a few comments. We've been away for two weeks, so um, we, we did get a little bit more uh, comments than usual. Uh, so I'll get into them here right now. Uh, first one is on one of our uh, YouTube videos. Uh, this is Shiftless One. Oh no, this is actually aha! Uh-huh. I, I uh, did due dil- diligence and checked our uh, iTunes, uh, which I really oh. do because I hate iTunes so much. Um, fair, enough, fair enough. But I, I went and checked it, and <laughs> we had a new comment. Although it's from last year, from December twenty fifth. Sure. Um, Someone was reviewing us on Christmas. Uh, yeah. Someone was oh, reviewing well, us on Christmas. And, uh, thanks a lot. Yeah, for the uh, what for this negative review. I'm sure it's going to be no, a negative it's a review. Five, it's okay. a five star. Re- it's a five star review. Oh, nice, uh, nice. Yeah, uh, this is from someone called Shiftless One. Okay. Uh, seeing this podcast title was borrowed from a classic horror film. I expected the movies reviewed would be limited to the genre and stuck in the post seventies era, but happily found this wasn't the case. The genial hosts cover a variety of films in various genres, ranging from older, obscure thrillers like Hangover Square to westerns like High Noon to neo-noir like Night Moves and, of course, horror, both old and new. The discussions are quite literate, interesting, and deep, focusing on thematic elements, characters, and production aspects rather than just the usual plot rehash and provide some real on-point observations about the films covered. Very engaging films and film talk. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's about the best review. I mean, we we can just quit now, right? Uh-huh. Like we've gotten one iTunes review, and it's the perfect one. Like you know, <laughs> well, we, it's we, done. Thank we, you, shiftless one. Yeah, I'm sorry you. it took us five months to notice that. Or, yeah, sorry, it took <laughs> a week five months to notice yeah, that. I never would have looked, but you know, uh, so uh, it, it could have been there for for five years before I would have even bothered to, to check. But yeah, uh, uh, hopefully, hopefully they stayed around. Hopefully they weren't like two months later. Where the fuck is my review being yeah. shouted out on the podcast? <laughs> these motherfuckers. Uh, really, this person uh, only listened to like a handful of episodes and then um, you know just just you know, wrote the review and then quit. But uh, yes, thank you very much for the review. We do appreciate all of our reviews. Um, we just don't often uh, check that particular site. Yeah. Uh, if you shiftless one are on Facebook, you should come to our uh, Facebook group. Yeah. They must be destroyed on site on Facebook. It may very well be one of our existing Facebook members under a different name, of course. So uh, yeah. if, if you are shiftless one, and not just a shiftless one. Yeah. Uh, l- let us know. Although we we enjoy socializing with shiftless people as well, so that's fine. yeah. We're, we're both kind of shiftless ourselves, so yeah. uh, you know, it's kind of fine. Yeah, but uh, that that was very cool. Uh, so two reviews on iTunes, both of them positive, because the first one was from uh, our friend Mike Murphy from uh, a while back. So there you go. Yeah, well, yeah, Mike Murphy's taste is just terrible, but. Um... <laughs> <laughs> we're not really going to talk Dorothy Malone today. We're just going to talk Marvel movies. I think that's the yeah. plan, right? You know? <laughs> that Black Widow. Uh, it's going to yeah. be all Marvel all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our next one is from a longtime listener and uh, 
acquaintance of yours, more of an acquaintance of yours than mine, but uh, uh, Henry Lampman. And yes. he says, Daniel, or to me and you, actually, why did I copy and paste that? that that's the fucking to me and to Daniel in the fucking... Yeah, fuck it. Um, as, as, <laughs> we'll see if that ends up in the episode. It yeah. will. You know, I'm not <laughs> the um, only thing, the only thing that's absolutely certain to never be cut out of an episode of a podcast is anything that says, "Oh yeah, we'll cut that out." Yeah, you know, that's the stuff that always gets left in. Yeah. Uh, as one of your four fans, yes, I enjoyed the discussion of hackers and short circuit, uh, and your lives as young nerds. I saw all three films in theaters and haven't seen them since. Um, I've been reluctant to revisit them, but maybe now I will. As much as the other three fans uh, want the podcast to get more political, help me out. Uh, or maybe he's maybe he's saying not more political. Yeah. I, I think that I think he's uh, I think he's doing a a bit of a uh, sarcastic you know, yeah. emoji there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back when I hung up my activist shoes, WikiLeaks was doing wonderful things for liberty and exposure. What changed besides maybe airing some of Clinton's dirty laundry? I mean, that's a bigger question than necessarily I want to get into in a, uh, you know, a little two minute answer. But uh, I mean, I think, I think the big picture is, you know, when you Chelsea Manning went to prison for one thing. <laughs> and I mean, it really kind of looks a lot more like, you know, the real thing that uh, WikiLeaks did was Chelsea Manning fed them their, you know, most important leak, you know, and kind of put them on the map. And Julian Assange was always just sort of the, the Bond villain-esque guy who, you know, <laughs> pretended it was all him, right? You know, he kind of got the media exposure. Regardless of how you feel about sort of American politics, et cetera, you know, when you are perceived as, you know, when you're when you're supposed to be the kind of big information, you know, kind of truth teller guy, and then you are perceived as being like kind of heavily biased towards one side of a, you know, kind of political activist mm-hmm. one way or the other, you're necessarily going to, you know, your reputation is going to sink. You know, I think if he had, if he had been doing the exact same things, but have been doing it in a sort of pro Clinton and anti Trump direction, I think he would have been treated exactly the same way, you know, maybe by different people, but uh, you know, (laughs) you know, all, all Julian Assange has to do in order to get my respect would be one face the rape charges he's facing in Sweden (laughs) two, uh, release Donald Trump's tax returns. You know, find and release Donald, Trump, Donald Trump's tax returns, and uh, I'm going to consider it all good, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but yeah. you know, uh, you know, Julian Assange, Assange, one of our other three listeners. Uh, get yeah, on yeah, that I'm shit. sure. I'm sure he's. I'm sure he's one of the people listening. <laughs> he's <laughs> he's the uh, who's the guy, the iTunes review guy. Um, yeah, shiftless that, that one. Shiftless yeah. one. He's. I mean, Julian Assange himself is very shiftless. Uh, yeah, again, so there you go. <laughs> you, know, you, should, you should probably face those rape charges, Julian, if you're listening. And uh, you know, Art Bell just died. Uh-huh. So he was obviously killed. It's all fitting into place right now. The and conspiracy uh, is coming together. Uh, Milos Forman just died. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you in like three months we'll do a Milos Forman episode because that'll be the first time we get around to it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh we'll talk about Art Bell. God, we're never gonna actually get to these films, are we? It's gonna be great. All right. Uh, okay. Uh next comment. Uh, yes. thank you, Henry, and I uh, hope you comment more. You you're yeah. you're too we, silent. We, we we always do appreciate your comments. Uh we disagree politically, but I, I, I we do appreciate your comments. Thank you very yeah. much. On our episode, The World, the Flesh, and the Devil on YouTube, uh, someone called wow. Cindy G. <laughs> this is another one of these. I, I thought I was getting the movie. Instead, I'm getting a podcast. Uh, um, nice. she, she writes, wanted the movie, 
not some guys talking about it. And that was well, it. <laughs> I'm sorry, we did not make the world the flesh and the devil. Yeah, I, I suggested to her that she should try searching better next time. Yeah, I'm because pretty sure the world of the flesh of the devil is on YouTube, right? I think it is. Yeah, um, and I mean, even if it's not, when you search for it and our podcast comes up, ten things down the list, and you look at it, it clearly shows that it's a podcast. It's not the fucking movie. So, yeah. I, well, yeah. So, uh, Cindy, grow a brain. We also, have... the world of the flesh of the devil is a quite a good film, and I hope yeah. you found it and watched it and enjoyed it. She probably wouldn't have. She sounds. <laughs> she sounds really dumb. Another YouTube comment. This is on our uh, Bad Day at Blackrock uh, episode. Someone called Rozzy Farrell. Actually, he actually had a stream of comments. So he was commenting as he was listening to the podcast, basically. Okay. Um, so he starts off positive. He's like, this is a great movie. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> I love I love he starts off positive. This is the uh, this is the moment where you open the beer. Okay, we're done. Yeah. All right. Let's go. Uh, this is a great movie. Spencer Tracy, Robert Ryan, Ernest Borgnine and Lee Marvin were excellent. Then he says Marvin was far cooler than Clint, which yeah, I, I probably well, I probably say he is. Yeah. I mean, cooler? Yeah. I mean, certainly uh I mean, if Clint Eastwood had died in like 1980, I think we would consider, that, you know, a lot of a lot of the Clint Eastwood baggage is sort of later material, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or after Unforgiven. I mean, you know, it's it's sort of you know. <laughs> he says the town was terrified. Tracy's unfazed. I think he was kind of kind of questioning our what? Uh, why are the townspeople all being dicks? Kind of kind of thing. Then he says, and I, I I can't remember if I uh, mentioned that all three of these people were in the Dirty Dozen or not, or if I just mentioned two. But he says. The Dirty Dozen had all three, Marvin, Borgnine, and Ryan. Um, then he asks, are you guys real movie fans? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're listening to something like episode like 105 of a uh, podcast about movies, so I would think so. But yeah. you know. Then he says, know your people. And then he finishes off by saying, cursing is not equal to commentary. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, fuck you. Yeah, that's that's what I that's what I told them in the YouTube comments. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> cursing, cursing is orthogonal to commentary. I think that's you know I'm uh, you know I don't know I haven't gone back to listen to that one, but uh, you know you can't please everybody. No, and uh, I don't want to, especially not fucking dicks like Rosie Farrell. So fuck you, Rosie. Then we have a couple comments on our Facebook page. First, my friend Erie Eric, after I posted a picture of Dorothy Malone, uh, he writes, Holy shit, that woman is drop-dead gorgeous. That neck, those ears, those cheekbones, those glasses, those eyebrows, that bottom lip, those teeth, that uh, jawline, that suckable nose. Yeah. So this, this was our response after seeing The Big Sleep as well. Yeah. And uh, why this episode is existing. Uh, because the, the I believe the photo you posted is a still from the Big Sleep. If mm-hmm. I if I'm yes, it is. So, yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's pretty much all the commentary I was going to do on these films. So uh, <laughs> you know, we can just kind of close up early. Then we're done. See you guys in episode <laughs> 120. <laughs> uh, and then finally, Jeff Williams says, "Oh man, she was in so many underrated films like Warlock, The Last Sunset, The Last Voyage, and Private Hell 36." These sound like all titles that we have to. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I will do. I will do a lot of Dorothy Malone films based on what we've seen uh, so far. So yeah, let's throw them all on there. We'll uh, do them eventually. Yeah. Ah!
and movies. The world is full of them. From low-budget crap fests to downright unwatchable. And only two men are willing to watch them all. So climb in and take your seat. This is Short Bus Cinema. Let's do it. Hey everyone, this is Johnny Krug from Kruger Nation. And this is Rick Morgan from the Helming Power Hour. We have decided to team up and take you where no one has gone before. We're on a quest to find the world's worst movie, and we're doing it on the bus. Driving through cult classics and every genre to find the holy grail of bad movies. So if you're looking for something different and more fun than you can stand, then climb on in. Short Bus Cinema is a proud member of Legion Podcasts. That's right, yo. Short Bus Cinema. We'd love to watch the movies you hate. Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host Duncan McLeish and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic old school horror favourites as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms to see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The Podcast Under The Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under The Stairs, signing off. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, necrophilia. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, Prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get out of it. unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this movie. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept little history all popping up at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you you couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was. How did you watch this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. And now to present the award for the best actress in a supporting role. Mr. Jack Lemon, ladies and gentlemen. Jack, it certainly is wonderful to see you, and I would like to take this opportunity to tell you that I am one of your greatest admirers. Well, uh, 
Jerry, gee, I, I, I don't know what to say. Just read the teleprompter like everybody else. It's easy. <laughs> Thank you, you, Mr. Lewis. The nominees for the award for Best Actress in a Supporting Role. Nominees for the award, Best Actress in Supporting Role are Mildred Dunnick in Baby Doll, Eileen Heckert in The Bad Seed, Mercedes McCambridge in Giant, Patty McCormick in The Bad Seed, and Dorothy Malone in Written on the Wind. The envelope, please. Dorothy Malone in Written on the Wind. I'd like to, I don't know how much time we have, but I'd like to accept this award in the name of my late little brother, Bill. And I'd like to thank especially the Academy because I'm sure that this year, the four other girls, such stiff competition, it was a real, I really appreciated. And uh, I know I haven't got time to thank such loyal friends as Edna Benoit and my producer, Mr. Zug Smith, and Universal and all its uh, board of directors who've been had such confidence in me, like Mr. Mull. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I want to thank the, <clears throat> the Screen Extras Guild and the Screen Actors Guild, because we've had a lot of ups and downs together. And you understand all the crews I've worked with. Thank you so much. And God love you all. All right. So uh, we're going to start off first. And this is uh, Dorothy Malone's sort of um, foray into being an independent, no longer under contract by one of the big studios. And this is The Fast and the Furious from 1955, directed by John Ireland and Edward Sampson, written by Roger Corman, Gene Howell and Jerome Oldlam. Uh, it is starring John Ireland as Frank Webster, Dorothy Malone as Connie Adair, Bruce Carlyle as Faber, Iris Adrian as Wilma Bedling, Marshall Bradford as Mr. Hillman, Bruno Visoto as Bob Nielsen, and Bird Holland as Doctor. I have a lot more on here. Oh, actually, I, I, I should say this one. Larry Thor as Detective Sergeant. That's, I like that. <laughs> but, that's, but, like, uh, that's like Major Major from uh, Catch-22 is Detective yeah. Sergeant. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, on, honestly, as we get into this, we'll, we'll quickly, you'll quickly discover that none of these people really matter other than yeah, like, yeah. The, first, the first two people. Um, but There uh, are like three people in this entire plot that, that matter. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. The synopsis for this, a trucker f- framed for murder breaks into jail, takes a young woman hostage and enters her sports car in, in a cross-border road race, hoping to get to Mexico before the police catch him. That's the plot. I mean, that's... So it sounds like even more plot than actually what you actually see on screen, really. <laughs> yeah, no. The, the, if anything, there's less plot in the actual film. Um, it really does kind of rely on uh, basically just the leads uh, being charming and uh, mm-hmm. kind of doing what they're doing. Yeah, uh, I guess uh, I guess I'll, I'll start here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, if you've seen The Chase, the 1994 Charlie yes. Sheen, Christy Swanson vehicle, um, which I haven't seen in almost 20 years now, I remember liking it. It's got some, some sort of surreal elements to it. I think, you know, kind of watching this made me think, yeah, we should probably kind of check, the, check, check that out again. Let's do a Charlie Sheen episode and uh, 
yeah, that's going to be a disaster. Um, but anyway, if you've seen The Chase, this is a, a pretty similar plot, just without the sort of media satire stuff um, and without quite the, like, they're literally just driving for, you know, an hour and a half. And, uh, you know, it kind of, to each film kind of has its credit either way, you know, because I think The Chase kind of makes it work as a surreal kind of thing. Um, this is much more low budget and it just kind of becomes a, a sort of a man on the lamb and he's kind of, he kidnaps Dorothy Malone's character, um, almost by chance and then they just sort of they start this kind of budding relationship and uh there are a couple of car chases and then the movie's over you know it's yeah uh, there's not much here uh probably the most interesting thing is just the kind of basic setup of the thing the whole reason that they're that nobody can find the trucker this this kind of the guy uh, played by john ireland um john ireland both stars in this and directed it which yeah. is a very low budget film kind of thing of this era just you know yeah i think this is you know roger corman um, but yeah. probably the most interesting thing is that, you know, this guy kind of comes in and he says, you know, oh, a jalopy. And he's saying sarcastically that this very nice Jaguar that Dorothy Malone is driving is a jalopy. <laughs> and then but the uh, woman at the diner who kind of ends up witnessing the the sort of kerfuffle and then they kind of run off and you know she talks to the police and so she says oh they were driving a jalopy and therefore they're looking for a really shitty car and so nobody nobody kind of realizes that it was you know sarcastic and i mean it's kind of a a nifty little bit of plotting because it just sort of explains how they're able to kind of get through the police checkpoints in in the way that they are and kind of yeah i don't know it sort of justifies itself in, in a way that's more clever than it had to be and i sort of respect the film for that yeah. Other than that, I mean, there's really no story at all here, except, you know, they just kind of drive around a lot and, you know, make eyes at each other. When you go into this, you've probably already known about the Fast and the Furious franchise, the modern one, right, yeah. where this has no real connection to it because that franchise basically just bought the name, the rights to the name, not to the rights right. to the actual story, because they figured, well, we don't want Roger Corman to sue us, so we'll buy the rights to the name for uh, what I read was stock footage rights to use stock footage <laughs> uh, which is a very corman thing and i'm sure there was also a pile of money involved somewhere as well because that's yeah, also yeah. a very roger corman thing but yeah this start this is kind of like you, you kind of figure fast and the furious 1955 it's got to be a teenager's driving stock cars around the road and going crazy not at all it's it's no, like that's, a, that's grand theft auto that's you yeah. know, a few years down the line this is i mean this is literally just you know we got two actors and you know in a car and they're they just kind of walk around and do stuff you know yeah, this is I mean, it's supposedly sort of a, a crime film it's supposedly kind of a thriller but uh it's kind of a kind of a noir plot yeah, but but I mean, it doesn't really have a plot at the same time, <laughs> right? This is, I mean, we're 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 starting with this one. This is, I think, uh, I I don't want to speak out of turn here, but this is the least of the three we're going to cover. Oh yeah, it totally is for sure. I did uh, watch this a couple of weeks ago when we were first planning on doing it, and then I rewatched it this afternoon, and uh, I mean, it's it's it's. I kind of had a hard time really paying that close of attention to it. Yeah. Even as sort of like just kind of casually rewatching it. Dorothy Malone is really good in it. I think, Mm -hmm. I think the actors are really good. I mean, I think even the kind of the bit parts, I don't think that they're, I think, I think it sort of, it works on that level. It's got some, some pretty good production value, you know, for what it is. I mean, the version that's on YouTube, I think it is in the public domain. So the version on YouTube is like really shitty quality. Shit, (laughs) It does look like shit, especially in certain sequences where it just is very clear that like this could use the touch up um, Uh from a restoration team if we're going to actually try to watch this. But 
it's really painless at least. I mean, it, it doesn't, um, it's not like actively hurtful and uh, I do uh, like the performance, but it really doesn't make a lot of sense as to why, you know, I mean, you know, you know, she just kind of falls in love with this guy. Yeah. It's just like Stockholm syndrome without any yeah, real reason, without any kind of real justification for it. And without oh. any real kind of characterization, like she just sort of believes him when he says, Oh, I'm innocent. And I was like, Oh, you're innocent. Well, you know, let's, mm, let's but, yeah but before that even it's like you know her everyone's just so kind of badly written in this it's like she does her best and like she she's snappy with the dialogue and she makes yeah. it interesting you know but some scenes she's really cold on him and then then she moves to hot you know like she yeah. she she goes back and forth like oh i'm into him i believe him and then the next scene it's like they're they're both at each other's throats again you know yeah um so it doesn't really make any sense. And then you just get a lot of filler footage. There's a bunch of stock footage here. There's a, there's actual stunt stuff that was done. Uh, Corman, not, this isn't his official first directing credit, but he did do like some second unit uh, stuff on this and even drove uh, one of the cars for some of the stunt work. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah. I don't know. There's just not much here. It's just kind of, well, it's just kind of like, it's, I mean, it's, it's worth a bit. I mean, you know, it's Corman. It's Roger Corman. So if you're a completist, you know, it's one of the films he produced. It's um, also, I believe, the very first, yeah, the very first film produced for the American International Pictures mm-hmm. Company. So you can see um, some of the some of the origins of where the, the kind of the exploitation genre is going to go in, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 years. You can kind of see and sort of embedded here the same sorts of ideas, you know, but... Ultimately, it's a low-budget flick. Um, if it wasn't Roger Corman directing it uh, or producing it, then we probably would just kind of forget it entirely. Dorothy Malone does what she can. I do like that she's the uh, kind of race car driver. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that, that, you know, she's not like borrowing the car or something like that. I mean, there is this sort of like proto-feminist angle. I think the thing that I'm learning about Dorothy Malone is from kind of reading about her and kind of watching these films, even when she was kind of just doing whatever she could get for hire, um, she tended to pick good parts. And despite that this is the most stereotypical role of the three we're going to look at and um, the least of the films, I think it's uh, still nice that there is a little bit of a, you know, she, <laughs> you know, she, she's more clever than she has to be. She's not just sort of damsel in distress, which, yeah. you know, Marilyn Monroe often was in, in films of the Skema yeah. era, you know, so. Yeah, no, she comes off way better than uh, anybody else in the in the film. So um, yeah, I mean, she's should... the only she's the only one really that's like memorable. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I mean, even John Ireland was like directing himself and still comes across as kind of like a generic dude. Yeah, maybe the the asshole at the diner at the beginning. You, you yeah. kind of remember that guy who's the guy who gets knocked out and you have to like rely on him finally waking up from his coma or whatever the fuck to finally give some information. <laughs> <laughs> um the only other person would be the uh, the woman behind the diner and just because she can't uh Shut up. she can't find the pineapple juice and yeah. she gets the jalopy thing wrong um but yeah no it's it's a decent little you know whatever but it's not it's not really worth uh kind of I don't know. It's an hour and what is an hour and twelve minutes long or something like that on yeah. YouTube. And you could play that at like 1.5 speed and you'd be fine. Like you'd you'd get what's going on there. Yeah, uh, but I mean, it did really well though. Budget was fifty thousand, and it made two hundred fifty thousand box office. So no, I'm sure they played it. At, you know, it was just sort of one of those drive-in kind of you know mm-hmm. cheapies, uh, and it played as a B picture, and yeah, made money back. Sure, great, and yeah. uh, launched the career. I mean, launched uh, Roger Corman's career. So yeah, this, this really did sort of take off for him, and 
helped get him his first directing job, uh, which we'll move into right now, I guess. Uh, yeah, Five no, Gun- I've got nothing more to say. I mean, yeah. I'm done. <laughs> uh, Five Guns West from 1955 as well. Directed by Roger Corman, written by R. Wright Campbell. This is starring John Lund as Govern Sturgis, Dorothy Malone as Shaley Jethro, Mike Connors as Hale Clinton, R. Wright Campbell as John Candy, no relation, uh, <laughs> and Jonathan Blaze as Billy Candy, no relation, uh, Paul Birch as uh, J.C. Haggard, and um, James Stone as Uncle Mike Jack Ingram as Stephen Jethro and Larry Thor as Confederate captain. And the synopsis for this during the civil war, five condemned Southern prisoners are plucked off death row and promise pardons on the condition that they undertake a mission to head West and bring back a double crossing Confederate spy who has a stagecoach full of Confederate gold. It sort of, it does. I mean, it, it, I, there's a lot that I have issues with. We're reading this off of the Wikipedia page, yeah. and uh, you know, I watched this this afternoon, and there's a lot of stuff that uh, is not really accurate on this Wikipedia page. No, but again, uh, what, what's your sort of initial? I'm not even on sure this? her last name is Jethro because yeah. Jethro is the last name of the guy who's like the um, the Confederate traitor or the the guy who the traitor to the That's, Confederate. Yeah, so the guy. So so. I, so I think whoever wrote this plot summary didn't know what the fuck they were talking about. Yeah, it could be. Because I got that. I mean, I read the plot summary, and then I was kind of expecting a twist that never came. And in fact, you get a you get a different twist. So I probably had a different experience of this film that I was really intended to have <laughs> because I kept expecting, like, oh, no, it turns out I was the Confederate War uh, deserter all along or whatever. But yeah, this film was really good. I think it's a, a little bit slow to start. I think that the first 30 minutes or so might play better now having seen the film and kind of gotten a little bit more of um you know where it's going to kind of you know at first the the five uh, men who were supposed to be able to kind of tell apart pretty quickly i mean it spends some time um trying to give us a little bit of backstory on them you know at the very beginning um just as they're kind of being read their pardons but i found it really difficult to kind of differentiate them at first i think yeah. you know it's kind of like let's just kind of get into the movie and kind of tell me this without just literally reading it out to me and i think now that i've seen the film i can kind of go back and maybe kind of reprocess that and kind of go oh okay now i know what you were trying to tell me all along and then the final third kind of becomes a little bit of a kind of a low budget action thing which is a fairly i mean it's got some pretty clever stuff in it it's got some mm-hmm. stuff in it i quite like um particularly there's a sequence involving some floorboards and a crawl yeah. space that i think is um actually really much more clever than a film like this would typically be but it, it does kind of feel a little bit like oh it's low budget western kind of like tv western kind of production value and um but the middle, the middle of this film is actually really interesting, and that's the part that Dorothy Malone is in yeah. most prominently. Um, she is absolutely the best thing in this film, and I think mm-hmm. this is a film that basically works from beginning to end. It's amazing that this is made in 1955 because this is—I mean—it feels like it's pointing pretty directly towards a revisionist western kind of yeah. uh, aesthetic. This is uh, this is a this is a proto Dirty Dozen. Yeah, it's a proto proto Peck and Paw, proto Morricone. I mean, or a uh, Leone. I mean, mm-hmm. you could you could put a Morricone score under this, and you know, like it, you can know, lengthen some of the shots, like just re-edit it slightly, and you could tell me, oh, this was a you know, this was a low budget spaghetti western, and yeah. I, you know, and I believe you. I mean, you know, uh, it it works that well. 
Um, it's uh, not, you know, to the level of like a Leone or, you know, like a, like the great silence or something like that. It's not, it's not that good, but it definitely is. It would fit pretty uh, handily into that uh, subgenre. I really like some of the character work here. I mean, again, again, particularly Dorothy Malone. I love that she's clever. I love that the, the kind of the card sharp guy, he, you know, he kind of comes up and he's trying to like Ooh. kind of char- literally charm her pants off. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she literally kind of gets away from him and closes the door and goes, he thinks he's charming. And I just, you know, I kind of love that. I love that she's trying to get information out of these guys. Uh, there's the really dumb guy who's also the uh, the writer of the film, which I think is just a, uh, <laughs> it's the same actor. The actor who plays that is also the writer of the film. He knew um, what he was doing. Yeah, he's he like, knew what he was doing. But uh, I love that he uh, you know he just starts giving her all the information she wants, and like, you know, and she acts. Oh no, I'm just here for some tobacco. It's uh, yeah, and you can tell in her performance. I mean, it, it really is. I mean, it, again, it seems like damning with faint praise, but you can see in her performance. Yeah, she's just tricking this guy and um on the page i can't imagine that it works nearly as well as as kind of her performance is able to kind of breathe into that you know yeah i can i can see i mean because there's a review of this um you know just on the kind of again on the wikipedia page you know uh dvd savant found this movie is less interesting for its quality than its place in the development of independent production tv guy gave the movie two out of five stars finding it similar to the westerns of the time i disagree with that entirely i mean you know like I mean, if you were just, I guess if you're just watching this on TV, you know, and kind of didn't pay any attention to it, it's like, well, it just kind of looks like a low budget Western. I mean, I get that, but there's so much more going on in this than in a lot of other stuff that's made around this time. There's more stuff going on in the scripts and it's also a bit grittier than stuff you would find at this time, like 1955, not a lot of Westerns with stabbings and with people being shot on screen within that shot. Like, yeah. um, you know, when you, when you talk about the Spaghetti Westerns, a lot of historians make a point that Spaghetti Westerns were much more instrumental in, in showing, like, hey, this guy's getting shot, and you actually see him getting shot within that shot on the film, you know? Right. Like, instead of there, there's a close-up of someone shooting, and then it cuts to the guy falling over you know yeah there's even a, a long shot like a, a kind of a, a deep focus take where you know there's this guy riding off on a, on a horse and you know mm-hmm. basically somebody like picks up a rifle and aims and fires and then he falls off the horse you know kind of yeah. down the line again for the kind of super low budget sixty thousand dollar production uh it's it's a really interesting shot um some of the action doesn't work at all like the uh, there's a there's a there's a final shootout at the end where uh you know a guy pulls the trigger and then it takes about a second for the guy to uh respond <laughs> um and then there's a uh, there's a fist fight in the dirt that's pretty obviously uh, a couple of uh, actors who had like one take to uh, pretend oh, to uh, some, follow. Or, you some know. of the yeah, some of the physical struggles in this make the fist fights in spaghetti westerns look good, incredible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it, it definitely uh, kind of lost me a little bit there uh, in terms of the sort of the uh, the the uh, standard pleasures of the western are uh, you know supposed to be in the sort of the gunfights and the fist fights and yeah uh, sort of thing and uh, this. Uh, this actually it falls down on that regard. I mean, ironically, this right there in the in the final you know ten minutes, basically, it kind of mm-hmm. has those two moments that just completely take me out of the film um, in terms <laughs> of you know just sort of buying the reality that it's actually done a pretty good job of establishing to that point. And I also think that once Dorothy Malone kind of becomes the you know kind of more generic Western supporting role, you know, kind of the you know, yeah, just what, the once role they. 
once they get into the the siege aspect of the final part of the film, you know, because the middle part of the film is kind of let's all try to rape the blonde girl. That's like <laughs> that's kind of uh, like the middle part of the film to a certain there's, degree. But and there's a there's a pretty pretty intense little rape moment there. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's a sequence that reminded me. I mean, honestly, this film reminded me of Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh, during yeah. that sort of a sequence. I mean, this yeah, yeah, again, it's know. not nearly as well done as that sequence is. It's not nearly as sort of focused on character, um, but certainly, I mean, basically, you know, this guy's coming on to her. He's like, just give me a kiss, just give me a kiss. Yeah. And then, like, he starts forcing his way onto her, and uh, I mean, it's legitimately threatening. Mm-hmm. And she's like, okay, I'll do whatever you want. I mean, she's she's literally like acquiescing just to you know just to to keep her life basically. And it's I mean, it's actually a, a fairly. I mean, you can see that there is a. Um, I mean, this isn't really a Western. It's really more of a thriller, almost horror mm-hmm. kind of film um, in, in moments like that. And then, again, you mentioned the, the knife sequence at the end. I mean, you know, there's a there's like a slow stabbing at the very yeah. end of this film that definitely felt like a lot more hardcore than I was expecting for a, for a Western made in 1955. It feels much more kind of modernistic in, in that way. I mean... And that's yeah. what, and that's kind of the term. That's the adjective I'd use for Five Guns West. Is it feels much more modern than I was expecting in a film like this. And this is yeah. And for for Corman's first uh, take in the director's chair, really well done, really well put together. Like he he did a lot of films after this that looked like mm-hmm. shit compared to this. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, this is um, there are at least um, kind of two fades that are actually, I mean, legitimately well done. There's one. Right. Um, where uh, you do a time cut, and he's any. He, I mean, there's a scene yeah. that happens where on Dorothy Malone's face, then the camera pans over to a lamp, you know, without mm-hmm. a cut between those things, and then we fade into to later on with the lamp yeah. lit, you know, which is a simple shot, but again, low budget in this kind of era, and with again without a cut there, so. Um, that was definitely like assembled in, you know, <laughs> I mean, it was assembled ahead of time, which is a, one of those things that is a stylistic choice that you don't often see in films like this, you know, with, with this kind of budget. Yeah. And then later on, there's one where there's, a, I mean, there's a dead guy and then you're literally like you fade to like dirt on his face, <laughs> you right. know, um, and in a really um, interesting kind of kind of match cut there. So there are two like really strong visual moments that, again, just describing them don't sound like much, but it is much more sophisticated than you get from a lot of other films like this. Yeah, I mean, I bet Corman had some good prep time on this because throughout his career, I wouldn't say Corman's a great director, but one of his biggest strengths is that he really was a proponent of prepping films. Yeah. Um, some sometimes he just dolly out really cheap films that didn't have a lot of prep time, but here it, it just feels like he had everything. Well, solidified. if you if you have no money. Yeah, you know, like like if you have no money and you're doing everything yourself, you've got to prep ahead of time. You know, mm-hmm. it's when you can throw a hundred million dollars at something that you could just sort of like throw money at the screen and then just figure it out later because yeah. you can always just go and reshoot something. You know, low budget filmmaking. I mean, the whole thing is like you've got. <laughs> nine days you've got this script you've got to shoot it you've got no money you've got you know you have to plan ahead of time and that's just sort of you know i mean that's that's just the the nature of the beast i mean and that's that's what's so great about low budget filmmaking um in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways it really kind of cuts the wheat from the chaff in terms of people who can really make a real film and people who just sort of you know just throw money at problems you know yeah I will mention that um, one one thing that takes me out of this a little bit, like from right at the start afterwards, I I was all right with it, but nobody in that group of Confederate guys sound like they're from the South at all. Like nobody in that. I nobody was kind of, 
I was kind of assuming that we were out west somewhere. I mean, do they ever like tell us where we're supposed to be? Uh, well, I mean, it's it's supposed to be the well, no, it's not out west because they go west on, on their mission. Right, so, right. so it's it's the. It's I was like kind of the, assuming it's like Texas or something where it's yeah. not it's not like Mississippi or Louisiana or whatever. It's okay. where, I where guess. kind of because Texas was was under Confederate control at that point. So right, you know, okay. Um, so the, yeah, that's that's probably more my bias than anything. Where when I think Confederate soldier, I think Mississippi, Louisiana, shit like that. Sure, but, no, I, I mean I'm not I'm not disagreeing with that at all. I'm just kind of going like, eh, I mean I don't know. I'm kind of giving the film just a little bit more credit than it probably deserves. You know? <laughs> <laughs> because anything, of... because the group has that one guy who's the older guy who's sort of got the uh, the Walter Brennan sort of squeaky old coal miner yeah, uh, gold yeah. miner thing going on. Uh, but yeah, okay, whatever. But um, <laughs> and also... Uh, he's, he's practically going tarnation. Tar- yeah, pretty tootin'. much. Yeah. God darn it. Uh, but also uh, the one Indian you see in the film, fake Indian. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, well, there's always that. And of course, like yeah. the, the whole uh, narrative, you know, the Indian savages, you know, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. They're out to get us. They're just going to, you know, the first the first 20 minutes of the film is very much like, you know, we have to be quiet or else these, you know, the savages will kill us, you know, sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, but again, that's so uh, just kind of par for the course. I mean, obviously it's disgusting, but it's it's just that's just what these films did around this time. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of but yeah, this of is course good. there's the there's the rape sequence in it, and um, of course uh, this definitely goes on the uh, deep ambivalence about um, how people felt about the Confederacy and pop culture right. in the fifties. It's it's there really is this. Uh, I mean, and that isn't really to be laid on this film necessarily no. because I think it it does just have sort of this like. It really isn't examining that at all, and it isn't really kind of questioning it, that. It, but yeah, it, I mean, it, it doesn't. To, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry, but yeah, it it doesn't tackle that. It's like these guys are just they're in a situation where they basically have to work for the Confederate side. It's not like they're Confederate soldiers. It's not like they're all running around flying the Confederate flag or anything. Right, it's right. just like they're, they're not, they are the dirty dozen before the dirty dozen kind of thing. Right, so. right. The one thing is, uh, you know, and again, spoiler, I, I hope, uh, I hope people have, will actually see this. Film. I do too. Um, this, I, I mean, it sounds, it's, it's weird to say, but this, uh, this could be on my top 10 this, this year. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, I'm not saying it's definitely not on my top ten. Let's put it that yeah. way. So, I mean, I'm just gonna put that out there before because I'm gonna spoil. There is a um, kind of a, a third act twist, really, a kind of last fifteen minutes. You find out that the uh, one of the five who uh, we were told is kind of one of the criminals is actually a you know kind of a, a guy who's in the Confederate Army um, and uh, mm-hmm. ends up kind of becoming our hero at the end. We do kind of get that. Uh, there, there are a couple of uh, dialogue sequences between him and uh, Dorothy Malone's character where he sort of implies like, well, we just have to kind of fight this till the end because, you know, it's just sort of the thing that's just sort of the thing that war does, which, all right, I'm kind of with you. But it also, you know, does kind of you know, per- portray him as, you know, the kind of the wounded hero, the sort of, you know, man of some dignity who's just right. kind of like... Because yeah, at the end, he... He looks at all the people they buried, and half of them are Union soldiers. Right. And he actually gives them praise. These guys died with honor. They fought for their cause or whatever. And, oh, these psychopaths over here that we killed? Fuck them. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, no. So there is a... uh, I mean... I, I think we were at this point in terms of culture at that point. I mean, you know, in 1955, there were still 
a handful of like sort of people who remembered the civil war still alive. Right. I mean, you know, very, very old men. I remember there was like an episode of Dennis the menace from like 1955 or whatever, where you know, it was like, Oh, the very last Confederate veteran of the town was dying or something yeah. like that. You know? And when you think about like it, I mean, it really was, I mean, it really wasn't that long ago. And I think at that point there was just sort of sense of whatever side you fought on, it was a terrible war and you know, is it, doesn't it suck? And you know, what yeah. sort of, there was valor on both sides sort of thing. And um, yeah. I think even from a uh, kind of modern view and more, you know, even with these sort of politicized uh, kind of angles on that, you know, people can fight valorously for a terrible cause and, you know, yeah. <laughs> So I think we can kind of accept that and also just sort of also go and also slavery was. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are there are obvious shades of gray. I mean, almost what, shades of blue and gray. If you well and gray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, a series I really like on uh, still on Netflix right now, uh, Hell on Wheels. I mean, that that has characters who are Confederates who are not necessarily they weren't, you know, pro slavery or whatever. You know, there were there was more. Yeah to it than that but still at the same time it's you know in this sort of modern context it's eh, yeah you might have not been pro-slavery but fuck these guys <laughs> i mean you gotta keep in mind that at this point when this film was made i mean like uh gone with the wind was the highest grossing film of all time yeah and it was like continually being re-released for for reissues and i mean that that has like obvious sort of political implications for you know right. what kind of message that that people were getting i mean watching this made me think and i mean more so just sort of not necessarily in sort of direct ways because of the film, but it definitely made me think a, a kind of study of the way that the Confederacy was treated through cinema, through popular culture from like, you know, the beginning 1896 up until like 1975 would be a really yeah. interesting kind of study. And this would, would definitely be kind of one of those, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of, got, it's got, it's definitely has an ambivalent, kind of view of it i mean it really is just sort of they're confederates there's no reason they had to be confederates they could be union soldiers yeah you know they could you know it could be oh yeah we're you know we're there were, there were plenty of german soldiers who weren't part of the nazi party you know yeah sure absolutely anyway yeah the film was really, the film was really good yeah. dorothy mullen was really good I would recommend you watch this. The version that's on YouTube seems to lack a opening and closing credits. Well, um, there's um, there's a couple versions on that. There, there's a couple of them that try to skirt the uh, getting caught by the YouTube copyright thing, right. where they're like two hours long, where they they'll, they'll go halfway through the thing and then it'll start the movie over again at a certain point and shit oh, like okay, that. Okay. So yeah, so that's kind of a common thing that's done on YouTube these days. Yeah, I've like, seen. I mean, I saw kind of a couple of different versions and just sort of like, oh well, I'll just pick this one i'm sure it's fine um so it would be nice to get an actual uh, good version of this um yeah this is one where i think there is some uh, there are some uh, sections of this that just look like shit not quite as bad as, or not nearly as bad as a fast and the furious did but there yeah. are some some low light sequences that really could use a touch-up i'd love to see a nice restoration of this at some point probably when corman dies they'll do a big box set, you know? <laughs> well yeah and here, here's the thing uh fast and the furious and five guns west so there there's multiple versions on youtube i think there's a couple versions on daily motion as well if yeah. you search deep enough internet archive has fast and the furious but it's an even shittier version than the youtube version <laughs> but both of these are on amazon video apparently oh nice i yeah. didn't even check that that doesn't necessarily mean the quality is good, but oh, no, it does not but, at all. But, yeah, yeah, but the but the Fast and the Furious I know does have some decent DVD releases, and if they stole a print from there, 
is probably good. I think Fast and Furious is probably public domain anyway, so I think it's on yeah. a lot of those movie yeah. packs. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure Fast and the Furious is. I don't think Five Guns West is uh, public domain. But, no, I, um, that's actually a film that's a little bit better than like a B grade. Yeah, yeah. Thing, it's so. not the it's not the Z grade piece of crap, you know, whatever. And it's a yeah. Roger Corman's first directorial, you know, directorial debut, which. Uh, I'm sure kind of helped to uh, kind of keep it alive in terms of uh, rights and that sort of thing. Roger Corman paid a lot more attention to, uh, to this one than maybe he did to <laughs> Fast and Furious. Fast and no, Furious right. Like Fat, Fast and Furious would have, no one would have heard of that film if it wasn't for the fact that someone wanted to buy the rights to the name and make a f- series of movies. Right. I mean, I, that, mean I, I found it again, just on Dorothy Malone's Wikipedia page, uh-huh. uh, just kind of, uh, Looking at, I said, like you know, you know, behind the curtain here before we uh, kind of get onto uh, written on the wind, which uh, you know, I'm not trying to extend the episode, but my whole thing was, yeah, I just picked some stuff that would be interesting, and I kind of realized like Dorothy Malone was in the very first film that Roger Corman directed. Yeah. Well, clearly, we have to, I mean, we have to cover that anyway, and the fact that she's in it and also excellent in it, which we found mm-hmm. out means we, okay, well, we need to cover that one. And then also, oh, this, like, the Fast and the Furious, she's in, the, and I thought it was going to be kind of a teenage drive, you know, yeah. driving cars movie. So I'm like, well, that'll be fun, you know? And um, so it was a very easy, like, well, she's in these, like, very early American International Pictures films, you know? I mean, really, uh, we could have presented these to um, Mike Murphy. I bet he would have covered these on... Uh, on BBNBC, you know, of course, not yeah. not really any boobs in, in either of these no. uh, low body <laughs> counts, but you know, you could you could definitely see this being like kind of important even in in that kind of genre. So yeah, uh, that was really why I picked these two. But I mean, it looks like she has such a long career; we could have done like anything. It's it's so yeah, it's we great. we've got a lot of stuff to come back to. That's definitely yeah. sure. Okay, so uh, we'll move on now to "Written in the Wind" from 1956. presents Rock Hudson as Mitch Wayne, who owed everything to the oil-rich Hadleys. Lauren Bacall, who had married Kyle Hadley too soon. Robert Stack as headstrong Kyle Hadley. Dorothy Malone as Kyle's sister. In a tense, frank drama woven of the raw realism of life itself. I didn't take her to the motel. She took me. Your daughter's a tramp, mister. If that ain't plain enough for you, I can put it... As long as he could remember, Mitch, the outsider, the friend, had lent his strength to the Hadleys. To Kyle, too rich, too charming, tortured by a secret that made him lash out at all he loved. To Mary Lee, tormented by longings too strong to control. I can think of much better things than making smart talk. To Lucy, whom Mitch loved in silence because she was Kyle's wife. I respect my marriage. Haven't I? She have children. There's nothing wrong with Lucy. You've never cared about me. Or your wife. And why are you putting your two cents in? Only because of Mitch. Because I've never had him. 
your wife has. Take me away, Mitch. Take me out of this house. Kyle, I went to see Dr. Cochran this morning. We're going to have a baby. You shouldn't have done that to me. You, Mitch, and your little... How's that nothing to do with me? You dirty... before I kill you! Directed by Douglas Sirk, written by George Zuckerman and Robert Wilder, and is starring Rock Hudson as Mitch Wayne, Lauren Bacall as Lucy Moore uh, Hadley, Robert Stack, of Unsolved Mysteries fame and The Untouchables, the only two things I know him from. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's all. And now, and now this, that's it. You know? Yeah, and as, as Kyle Hadley, Dorothy Malone as Mary Lee Hadley, Robert Keith as Jasper Hadley, Grant Williams as Biff Miley, Edward Platt, the chief from Get Smart, as uh, Dr. Paul Cochran. Um, I knew I knew him from somewhere. Yeah. You couldn't place him. All right, go ahead. Yeah, Robert J. Wilk as Dan Willis, Harry Shannon as Hoke Wayne, and John Larch as Roy Carter. And the synopsis for this is alcoholic playboy Kyle Hadley marries the woman secretly loved by his poor but hardworking best friend, who in turn is pursued by Kyle's nymphomaniac sister. And yeah, that kind of the b- very bare bones of this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the plot is the plot is very soap opera. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you kind of look at the, uh, you know, this this kind of inspires things like Dallas and Dynasty and stuff later on, particularly yeah. Dallas, you know. I, can, can I start on this one? Cause I, oh, I, please, I, please go I, ahead. I really I enjoyed just, this. I just want to read, I just want to read the, like, this was the bit that told me, A, Dorothy Malone won the Oscar for this. So, yeah. I'm just kinda like, that's, that's an easy choice. If you look at the Wikipedia plot summary, the first line is, self-destructive, alcoholic, nymphomaniac, Marilee, Dorothy Malone, da 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 that that sold me right there. Yeah. I'm like, well, yes, this is a film we need to see. And Douglas Sirk directed it. We've never done a Douglas Sirk film. So, mm-hmm. yes, please tell me uh, tell me what you think of the film. Oh, my God. I love this. Um, and this is usually not the kind of thing I'd watch. But I was really hoping you would you would enjoy it because once I started watching it, I was kind of on the, I don't know if Lee's going to really get into this. So, uh yeah, please tell me tell me what you think of it. So I, I watched this cold. I didn't do any research on it or anything like that. After I did the research, a lot of my research actually confirmed what I was thinking about this. Uh, as, as soon as I started watching this, I was like, "This this film's a fucking parody. Like it's it's straight up a parody of 1950s melodramas. Everything here is over the top. Uh, it's in Technicolor. It's in the most garish fucking Technicolor you could fucking hope for." where every color just pops out in the fucking screen. Everybody's performance is heightened and big. And yet at the same time, the actors are so fucking good that you buy into the performances because it's it's just that well done. I I don't think I've ever seen a confirmation of this. Like I've seen some people kind of think this, but this feels like this movie must have had a big influence on David Lynch, just the way he presents a lot of his films, like Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive. Abs- I mean, I I think I mentioned. Um, actually, I'm 
I could probably <laughs> look at the uh, the plot summary I wrote for Blue Velvet. I'm pretty sure I mentioned Douglas Sirk in the uh, even. Oh, you might have. Yeah, yeah. And that was my first kind of time watching that. Uh, you know, it's a very um, there are people uh, people today might not know Douglas Sirk very well. I mean, I'm not like super familiar. I haven't seen a whole lot of his stuff. Well, he he Although, got out of Germany. Um, like he escaped Hitler's he, regime. He, right? he escaped. So um, Douglas Sirk was not Jewish. Um, uh-huh. But his second wife was Jewish, and he was working in okay. Germany, and he escaped in either 37 or 38. The sources I read varied on that. Um, but he did. He came to the U.S., and then he kind of had a, like a decade of not – he was just kind of trying to make it in Hollywood and then eventually sort of made it doing these sort of technicolor like – you know, dramas that were fairly successful, but really didn't get a ton of, uh, despite the fact that this kind of got Oscar nominations and stuff and it, and it won, you know, Dorothy Malone yeah. won hers for this. I think he was not really taken seriously because he made films about quote unquote women's issues that were kind <laughs> of about like sort of emotional relationships and family yeah. dramas and that sort of thing. People kind of saw it as being like, this is over the top. I mean, the thing is, this is camp, but it's, it's, uh, it's not camp in a way that's, it's sort of a, <laughs> it's like if you saw a streetcar named Desire and then you said, well, let's do the sort of the big version of this. <laughs> you yeah. know, let's take this even more seriously just to um, just kind of and then play everything in, in this kind of flat tone. I don't know quite how much for me the sort of satire of it played. I'm glad it played for you. Yeah. I think for me, it's it, I'm enough divorced from the kinds of you know, sort of the way that he's coding that in terms of the technicolors and that sort of thing. I just kind of read it as, oh, it's technicolor, and they just put a bunch of colors on screen because that's what they were doing. Um, so I didn't, I don't, I process it more on an intellectual level as a, as a satire than on the sort of direct, um, you know. Well, like, no, I, 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 I think you know? it, I think it works on both those levels. Like, as me immediately as I start watching this, just the visuals immediately made me think david lynch i was like jesus yeah. christ this is blue velvet like this is yeah. this is proto no, no. blue velvet Gu- i guarantee you david lynch saw this film there's yeah. no way david lynch did not see this film before he made blue velvet but but yeah then it gets into it and it's like totally fucking just fucking on these fu- these melodramas about rich white people that you saw yeah. throughout the 50s right like it is totally kind of deconstructing them in a certain way and 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 making fun of them and yet, at the same time, the performances are so goddamn good, yep. and they're they're so believable. Every, every everybody's broad, and I think yeah. that there's. I think it only falls apart in a couple of places where it it really needs to kind of hang together, and that's almost entirely on Robert Stack. And I think that that's not, you know, particularly to, kind of towards the end as he's really asked to sort of carry the film's emotional heft, right. and he's kind of doing the like super alcoholic thing, and. Yeah. Uh, Part of that is just the way that alcoholism was portrayed in films in the 50s. I mean, if you watch like Man with a Golden Arm, for instance, or, you know, kind of drug addiction or whatever. If you watch Man with a Golden Arm, I mean, that just looks ridiculous today, you know, oh, <laughs> rolling, rolling they're, they're, around they're, and, you know, like, you know, oh, my God, I need the needle. Uh, you know, it's it, it, it doesn't. The way Robert Stack drinks, there's no way he could do half the shit he's doing. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, this is that era of, you know, all the actors are bring, drinking brown water constantly, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Robert Stack. I mean, they don't drink shot glasses of whiskey. They drink like highball glasses of whiskey. Yeah. And they're carrying them around constantly. Both he and uh, Dorothy Malone's character are, you know, very, you know, aptly portrayed as alcoholics. Mm-hmm. Um 
I buy Malone a lot more than I buy Stack as as the alcoholic. Stack is definitely kind of like uh he's playing it up just a little bit too much. He's kind of doing the oh. like it's it's much more mannered. Whereas I think Malone is kind of at least sort of like in, inhabiting it and having a lot more fun yeah. with it. Yeah, no. Um, but she also kind of gets to be the film fatal in this. Right. So uh, there's there's a, you know, you kind of get, you know, Robert's dad kind of has to be the the straight man and he kind of has to be the the thing that's driving the plot forward as well. So, I mean, it is it is a difficult role, but I don't think he's quite up to it. Um, but I think everybody else is excellent. Um, yeah, there, there are times where Stack goes a little over the top where he's <laughs> over the top for this film. Right, right. Uh, where he is really over the top by the way i yeah, mean you know where, where where he's like literally hugging the bottles of corn liquor that he buys because mm-hmm. he prefers that is like you know the uh, there's one point where Barton is like i don't even expect to see you here i mean you should be over at the high class bar buying like martinis and stuff he's like i prefer the corn liquor it reminds me of my youth and it's like okay he's only like two steps away from basically sticking his dick in the fucking bottle and <laughs> oh yeah i know i mean i'm just kind of i'm just, again you start doing the math i mean this was made in 56 so you think like you know i mean prohibition ended in 33 he would have remembered being you know kind of a teen you know he would have remembered prohibition liquor, yeah. yeah no yeah. i mean and i mean it's just kind of one of those like historical bits where you just kind of like my head swims just a little bit when you imagine that kind of like how old these films are and, yeah you know, sort of the reality of it to some degree and the fact that you know thorgan malone literally died you know two months ago you know so. yeah I do love this film. I do actually prefer Five Guns West to this. Um, okay. Just as I just I, Five Guns West kind of came out of nowhere for me. I was really not. You uh, know, I can. I that. can see that. I can see that. Um, yeah. But I think this is like excellently made. I mean, the Cirque is obviously um, one of the things that uh, he's known for. If you've, I don't know how many of his films you've seen or kind of what what the. Uh, your I don't know is. if I've. I don't know if I've knownly knowingly seen any of his other stuff. Like I Have did you, very limited research. So. Have you ever seen uh, Far From Heaven? That's the uh, Julianne Moore, uh, Dennis Quaid movie where uh, Julianne Moore falls in love with a black man. And, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, I've seen that. That's, uh, that's, a, that's an explicit Douglas Sirk homage. Like, I mean, that's basically if Douglas Sirk was making movies in 2004. I, I, that's I see that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, if you kind of watch the DVD extras on that, they talk about like how, you know, Cirque is well known for doing, um, you know, if you watch this film, there's a lot of like mirror shots where, right. you know, Warren Bacall is in kind of one corner of the frame. And then there's a mirror and you can kind of see Rock Hudson in the mirror kind of, and then they're looking oh, at each other through that. Right, um, at the, right at the beginning of the film, like the, the first little part of the film where Robert Stack just sweeps. Lauren Bacall off her feet and like, hey, let's go on this adventure. And they go to this motel and he gets her this big lavish room. And while he's trying to woo her, uh, Rock Hudson's like in the frame of of the mirror. He's in the door frame, just sort of leaning there, going like, oh fuck, here we go. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, there's and there's a ton of uh, uh, there's a t- you know he loved uh, kind of subdividing his frames and he did a lot of kind of like static shots with that sort of thing, which uh, you know we talk about David Lynch, David Lynch does that even more so and does almost like tableau kind of shooting in something like blue velvet. Yeah. But with, with Cirque, it was still, um, it wasn't quite as, as staged as that. I mean, you know, it's, it's just a different style. I'm not you know, criticizing one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Cirque is, Cirque is definitely kind of doing that. I mean, if you watch this film, you can see there are a ton of, you know, even like the, um, the beads in the bar, you know, this kind of separate the different areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of see there is moments where they'll kind of walk through those. Um, even the way, uh, there's a, 
a, a nude scene, quote unquote, which isn't really a nude scene, but yeah. um, you know, Dorothy Malone's like robe ends up kind of serving that purpose in, in, in kind of a pivotal sequence. And so uh, you look at the direction here. I mean, you, I mean, you could you could watch this on mute with no subtitles and get a whole lot out of it just based mm-hmm. on the way it's shot. I mean, it's just it's exquisitely directed, and that's just Douglas Sirk. He he was a master, but he was a master in this kind of like weird way that you know just hasn't always. It's hard to kind of show this to somebody today and say like, no, like look at what he's doing. Look at how you know you, you kind of have to kind of. You have to be a film fan just a little bit to sort of get into Douglas Sirk. Yeah. Thank you, commenter on our uh, uh, for for criticizing us for not being film fans. We're talking about Douglas Sirk here. Go yeah. fuck yourself. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the funny thing here is before I saw this, and uh, you know, again the the Lynch connection. I, I was just assuming when I was seeing Lynch's films that. He was directly parodying just fucking soap operas. Like I, I thought mm-hmm. he was just doing parodies of those. But now I look at this in a different light. No, he's aping Douglas Sirk, and this was before soap operas. This is what soap operas took from these films and just threw away anything interesting and just well, made these shitty. Well, there's a there's a bit of a feedback loop, right? Because soap opera was a, a format that was invented to sell soap on the radio back in during right. the depression, right? Um, and then they, some of the earliest like TV shows, I mean, there were like, radio serials and some of the earliest TV shows were, you know, soap operas. And in fact, Dorothy Malone, you know, after this, you know, kind of as she gets a little Did bit she, older and then I think she, she ends up guiding light or something. She's on Peyton place, which is a oh, primetime soap okay. in the, in the early, starting in the early sixties. I mean, literally starting with black and white TV, you know, her later career, like a lot of her later credits are like return to Peyton place and like 1982 uh, yeah, or whatever, you know? So uh, she did some like made for TV movies. I really love her just because she did seem to kind of go back and forth between TV and film a lot and she never seems to have a I mean, she's doing Roger Corman movies like right the year before she wins an Oscar for this, you know, and you just have to think like, you know, she slumming it with Roger Corman, but hey, doing what doing what you had to do to make work. She um, she was she was quintessential like workman actor, yeah. you know, like she was yeah. she was doing whatever she had to do to keep in the fucking keep keep yeah. working. And and to be amazing and oh my god. Oh my God! Can we talk about Dorothy Malone? In yeah, this? she can is so good. Please talk about how amazing she is in this. Why don't you tell me how amazing? Oh, man, as sexy as you can fucking be in 1956 is what Dorothy Malone is is in this film. It's worth noting just just before we, I mean, before we even talk about that, that this film would have been considered incredibly racy for 1956. Yes. I mean, yeah. disgustingly racy for 1956. That's a lot of the way that the film was kind of sold and a lot of the way that, you know, basically cinema, I mean, they started to relax the Hayes Code so that films could compete with TV again, you mm-hmm. know? Because TV kit, well, TV was like domestic and at the home or whatever. If you want to entice people to come to the theater, you do two things. You widen the screen because nobody's ever going to have a widescreen TV and you start having people sleep with each other. Yeah, because you can't do that in prime time. And this film plays with that, like it's it could not have been made at any other time because it plays so well with that balance between you know what you can and can't kind of do on screen. Yeah. And this pushes about as far as it can. And Dorothy Malone is the ideal, the perfect like little moment for that. And with that said, now you tell me how brilliant Dorothy Malone is. She is so many things at the same time. She is 
sexier and more of a sex symbol than Marilyn Monroe could ever hope to be in this film. She skirts the edges of dangerous and sexy and pathetic and at the same time, just her, her body language and in her actual performance, everything combined together is so immaculate. Like there's no false notes with her at all mm-hmm. in this entire film. She, uh, of course she's stunningly beautiful. It's and a really difficult role. It's a really it like, challenging role tonally to sort of like pick up. And yet, you know, it, you know, I criticized Robert Stack perhaps a little bit unfairly. I mean, he's got a, he's got a hard thing to do here as well. I mean, he's got mm-hmm. an incredibly difficult thing to do. Dorothy Malone is doing something almost as difficult, and you never see her sweat at all in this. Film. No, she's doing this very broad, big character, but at the same time, she still brings the emotional depth to it. Like she's still you can you can see the insecurities in her character. You can see the underneath the the facade that she puts on all the time and i it's funny i mean the moment when um you know she's got the picnic basket like the 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 case and she sits in the car and she's like you know are you ready for lunch you know where do you want to go i've got an idea i mean there's this it's you just watch her in that scene and she like there's this fire behind her eyes and there's this scheming intelligence and also just this like completely kind of adorable nature and she's she as an actress is doing three or four things at the same time and the character is doing kind of three or four things at the same time and you just watch her and yet you i just want to laugh at like her body language where she's just so overtly trying to hit on this guy and Mm -hmm. you know the way she flirts with the guy at the gas station Oh God! Where that's she, also that's also another like brilliant bit of Douglas certain direction because that's all one shot, you know. Yeah, that's, that's and, amazing too. But, yeah, you know, no, her performance in that, like you just watch like the way her eyes flutter just a little bit, you know. And, yeah, uh, uh, I I love it because she's she's like so uh, you know uh, he's like I, I close up in an hour. What do you make half an hour? And then, no, no, it, he it, says half an hour, and she says, "How about earlier?" Like. <laughs> Or whatever, yeah, and and then and then like, go he, go lock up now. You know? Yeah, he yeah I love he, he, he recognizes each other. I think that's my favorite bit in that scene where you know she's like, oh, aren't you so and you know like yeah. you played football or whatever, and he's like, yeah, well, you didn't see you know, me my sh- you recognize me out of my shoulder pads or whatever. Right. Yeah, what's the really deaf bit of writing because you mm-hmm. you you know you know like oh I get kind of what you're saying now, and obviously this is a guy literally working at a filling station and this is, you know, basically like Paris Hilton or whatever, you know? Um, (laughs) And he's like, well, I know you. And it's like, oh, well, you know, we know each other. Let's go fuck. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's so, I mean, it's just great. It's just good. And and the look at, and the look at her face after he says that, and it's the 1956 version of yes. I'm going to get yeah. late tonight. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's such a great scene. It's such a great performance. Um, Even, I mean, there is this sort of thing where um, I watched this twice. And the first time I watched it, I, um, you know, just kind of watched it a little bit casually without subtitles or anything and just sort of, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of absorbed the film. I was kind of getting, it's not, I don't want to say bored, but I was definitely kind of getting the, like, all right, this is kind of 50s melodrama, kind of, you know, it's kind of doing the thing it's doing. And then Malone shows up. <laughs> And suddenly the film just like bursts to life. I mean, it really, there really is. There's this fire that's just kind of following her around the whole time. I, I can, I can see that. Cause like you start off, it's rock Hudson. It's uh Lauren Bacall. You're like, yeah. okay, I, we, I know what, I know what's going to happen. We've gotten this far in this film without even mentioning that Lauren Bacall is amazing in it. But yes, yeah. 
she is also super amazing, but it's, <laughs> Dorothy Malone's so fucking good that she overshadows Lauren fucking Bacall. Which, I mean, ironically, she also kind of does in The Big Sleep. It's just she's only in two minutes of The Big Sleep. Yeah, you know? that's, that's, <laughs> kind of, that's so weird. That's, uh, that says something about, like, I mean, Lauren Bacall is amazing. I mean, particularly in The Big Sleep. I mean, we, mm-hmm. there's no question that Lauren Bacall, like, there's a reason she became a star for 50 years, you know. And then you watch this, and, I mean, Lauren Bacall is fine, and she's, and again, she's got a really difficult role, but it's not a showy role. And I think that was one of the things where Lauren Bacall was aging. She was yeah. in her like mid thirties by this point. So, yeah, so she old. was like, a, like an old hag, you know, at this point, <laughs> um, you know, for, for Hollywood standards, but no, uh, she was, uh, you know, and I, and I think there is this sort of sense of, you know, this was, this part was maybe not like kind of the leading lady kind of role that, you know, kind of really would apparently, keep her going. Uh, apparently Bogart didn't like this film or her in it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's uh, I th- I, I mean, I think she's good at it. I, I mean, I, oh, I think, she's, I think she's she does. She's not doing the showy things. She's doing the. No, the you know. she's she's the straightest one in the entire film. Like yeah, I, yeah. like her and Rock Rock Hudson are they're they're almost like in a different universe compared to everybody oh, else yeah, in this yeah. film, right? The call has to. She has to. She has to be a woman who has a miscarriage in a film in 1956. Right, which is you know, it's yeah, that's just kind of crazy no i was gonna say uh the thing that you really kind of land on is that the the sort of the family relationship between the hadleys i mean this sort of hadley oil company and then um you know you kind of get dorothy malone's character and you get robert stack's character who are i mean again it's it's hard i keep coming back to the big sleep on this because it is kind of you know if you imagine like the uh like the tycoon and the big sleep yeah. he's got the two daughters who are kind of like they're going they're sewing their oats their oats sort of thing and i mean it is sort of this um you know slightly i mean it's it's kind of a cliche but it's it's also well you know that's kind of what was going on i mean this is just kind of what you know <laughs> you know I, I i use paris hilton as an example for a reason yeah. right you know um uh, yeah it's, it's the same idea but here in, in this case it's with this and the big sleep it's the sort of monkey shines of the kids that are like actively affecting the health of the patriarch of the fucking yeah. family, you know, whereas, you know, in real life, Paris Hilton, what every dumb fucking thing she does, her fucking parents don't care about her. Like, right. it seems pretty obvious. <laughs> <laughs> it re- really, in, uh, in real life, it's uh, Eric and Don Jr., are the are the uh, are the, uh, the siblings who are who are kind of you know oh just go kill some big game and uh, everything's mm-hmm. gonna be fine yeah <laughs> um no uh God I mean it's it's such a such a kind of fascinating film it's such a great I mean Dorothy again Malone is it's so great it's hard for me to think about anything else uh, about this film always nice to see a geologist on screen you know mm-hmm. um you never you don't get to see nearly enough uh, heroic geologists in cinema. <laughs> I think we should um we should definitely kind of play that up. Um yeah, no, I don't know, it's kind of hard to uh see this film. There's a Criterion edition. Um mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't know if the uh there's yeah. some some good uh you, special you can, features there. You can find a Criterion 2001 um and then I'm pretty sure it's probably streaming on Amazon too. I didn't check that, mm-hmm. but uh, I imagine it is. Um and I mean with the previous two films, the Corman ones as well, uh, I should mention Corman just recently sold all of his fucking films to Show Factory. He he had a previous deal with Show Factory with, with some of his titles that were released back in like 2010 or whatever. But now he he just did a deal basically like Corman's in his 80s. Like he, he doesn't have that much longer. No, Corman's in his 90s now. 
I looked him up. He's, he's like 91 oh, okay. or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Shit. Well, there you go. Uh, he has even less than I thought to, to live probably. Um, so <laughs> he still has the same amount to live. He just started earlier than you thought. Yeah. Uh, so, but, but he, he, he just, he just sold all of his titles and apparently his kids are suing him now because they, they feel, uh, sort of, uh, you know, gypped. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but he, yeah, he just sold all his, uh, the rights to his titles to show factory. And you're probably going to see a lot of this shit come back out in, on DVD and Blu-ray at this point. Like, I, I would, it would be really nice to see a, again, like a restored, a really good version of five guns blast. I, I think, mm-hmm. uh, some of these, some of these definitely need to be rediscovered. And I, I definitely want to do some more Roger Corman films and some more Douglas Sirk films and some more, definitely some more Dorothy Malone as yeah. well. Um, there's a, uh, <laughs> you know, I keep uh, I'm picking up girlfriends in the mm-hmm. uh, in the process of doing this podcast, uh, and uh, he actually did a film noir with Linda Darnell in 1944 called oh. Summer Storm. So uh, that's one that we just need to. Oh yeah, we're gonna know. do that. We're, we're gonna, gonna put that, that on the list, uh, sight unseen, right? You know. Um, yeah. Uh, I couldn't I couldn't find it. It wasn't on YouTube. Or I was I was literally gonna watch it this afternoon, and then I couldn't find it on YouTube. I was like, damn. Uh, yeah. You we're wrapping up because I do have a. So I'm going to surprise you with with something. Okay, well, yeah, we'll we'll wrap this up. I, I love this film. This is my favorite yeah. of the three. Please, please. I mean, we can keep talking. I'm just saying. Yeah, I got a, I I got know, a I just, segment we're going to do before you get into the DVD info. So okay, yeah. well, we did the DVD info, so we're already okay. Well, but, we're good. but all right, but yeah, but uh, I will mention one trivia thing here. Um, Douglas Sirk wanted it to be stated that Kyle Hadley was gay in the film. However, this could not be mentioned directly due to the Hayes Code. Right. Um, nevertheless, it was still implied that Hadley is secretly in love with Mitch Wayne. Which is ironic, considering Rock Hudson was gay, <laughs> right? I mean, it is it is one of those things where, particularly when uh, Dorothy Malone is like literally like, I mean, you can practically see her pressing herself into his dick, yeah. You know? And it is and like, just, and, and he's, and he's just kind of like you know, very straight laced, you know, like yeah. Hard shoulders I mean, there, there, there's such thing as being a good guy and respecting <laughs> your friend, and then there's Dorothy Malone rubbing her tits up against your dick. If, if like, uh, okay, dude. Dorothy Malone in that sequence, and if you if you go to YouTube and you just search Dorothy Malone, you know, and I think you have to search this movie or whatever, but you'll find like a little two minute clip that's mm-hmm. that scene, and uh, you know, watch that scene. It's you know, like it's <laughs> it's it's worth it. Trust me, you definitely kind of get that. Yeah, Rod Hudson, a gay man. I can I can understand how he was able to resist that a little bit more yeah. than uh, you know. Some of the rest of us, but yeah, no, um, it would be a, another kind of angle on this to kind of say, you know, and well, this, this kind of goes into what I was going to do here, actually, um, okay. which I was going to ask you, we haven't played a game in a while and I'm glad you oh. love this film because okay. we're going to play a little game. All right. Okay. We're going to play remake this. Remember when we used to play remake this? We did yeah. it a couple of times way back at the beginning. And so the way we play this game is I challenge you to remake written on the wind. You are a like a, a producer, right? So I come to you. I'm a studio head. I've got $50 million. I'm going to give to you to remake Written on the Wind. Okay. What I want from you is a director, a star or stars, you know, who, who you're going to put in it, and a sort of concept. What's your concept for how to remake this movie? Okay, so first thing, concept, I can't do this as a parody of melodramas, I have to make it more straight laced. So it's probably going to be a very depressing film. <laughs> Are you going to do it period? 
I I'm not going to do it. Period. I'm okay. probably gonna, I'm gonna I'm probably gonna modernize it. I'm almost tempted to make it in the '80s and make okay. it period in the '80s, I just think... because it informs so many yeah, films yeah. in the '80s, right? I'm but, feeling it. I'm feeling it. Okay, so shit. Okay, so first off, director for this. Yeah. yeah. Um, if you don't have like a name director, I mean, I kind of get that, but like just sort of concept. I'm just kind of going like, where's well, your? Well, what's well, your well, idea? Here, well, here's the thing. This film has such great dialogue, and it pops off. I almost want, and I think this is a weird choice, but at the same time, I think it's kind of a smart choice. I almost want David Mamet to direct this and to <laughs> rewrite would, the script. He he would, David Mamet would definitely not turn in the version that Douglas Sirk did. I, no. You know, we can leave it at that. But yeah, I could, I could see that. Okay, now, who are you going to cast? Okay, so Mitch Wayne, Rock Hudson's character. Who's that guy from Mad Men? Um, oh, um if you hadn't asked me, I would have been able to tell uh, the, you the big, the big star in Mad Men. Um, yeah, um, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Go ahead. Okay. Who else? Okay. Uh, Lauren Bacall's character. Yep. I would, Oh man, this might still work. She's getting a little older. Mm-hmm. I would, I would go Julianne Moore. I, I get that. I get that. Uh, she just, she just strikes me as that sort of classical actress kind of John thing. Hale. John Hamm. John, John Hamm. John Hamm is the Mitch Wayne character. Uh, the Robert Stack uh, uh-huh. character. Thinking age range. Mm. Oh man, I almost have a real, I almost have a really dumb answer for this that I would like to go see. With just dumb, go with the dumb answer. I, I'd like to see just just because I think it would be a train wreck. Tom Cruise. <laughs> I, I I would like to see him play a drunk playboy. Who you know throws his money around and I want I want to see basically he would be remember that scene in A Few Good Men where he gets like super wasted yeah and uh, you know it'd be that scene but he's now like fifty five yeah for, no. an, for an entire movie yeah okay yeah I'm with you I'm with you I'm with you okay yeah so like uh, the way I'm casting this you you got to kind of like okay so it's it's not quite as young as these people are in the film right, it's right, like yeah, a yeah, little no. bit older but uh, and the Dorothy Malone oh man. Oh man, who would I put with Dorothy Malone? Oh, maybe that would work. But should I should I bow to my fetish and have two redheads in the same film? You're you're the producer, man. You know, go go full Harvey Weinstein. Don't do go, don't go full Harvey Weinstein. But... No, no, <laughs> yeah, that's that's not exactly the right name to throw in no, there. No, no. Um, oh, you... actually, actually, you know what? I want to change. I want to switch the roles. Okay. I, I I want I want Julianne Moore. In the Dorothy Malone role, okay. I want I want Jessica Chastain in the Lauren Bacall role. Sure, that's sure. That's what I, that's what I want to go for. I could I could go with that. I I could I could uh, maybe actually just assume that this film was made in like two thousand instead. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I I feel like I feel like although, we can kind of play a little bit fast and loose well, with like yeah. Although you know, although how how old is Jessica Chastain anyway? She's like. She's uh look up. 40, maybe? I'm surprised uh, I mean I, I, I get your version of this. I'm I'm totally on board with it. Jessica Chastain is like forty just turned forty one. Okay. Okay, so assume Jess, Jessica Chastain was forty one in two thousand, and then you have then you have uh, Julianne Moore, you have uh everybody in place. Uh 
the guy uh, Edward Edward Platt who plays the doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I definitely have to recast him. So uh, I would I would use um, what's his face from Fargo? Jesus, his name totally escapes me. <laughs> William H Macy. William H Macy. He would be the doctor. Okay. In this one. Nice. Yeah, and I I think that yeah. kind of I, I feel like, but yeah, no, I I like I like your version of the movie. I I, I thought a little bit about this too. I'm not gonna you know I I'm not. I didn't put myself on the spot, so I, I can I can do this quickly. We'll we'll kind of wrap it up here. Mm-hmm. Um, my version, I'd do it more modern day. Uh, I do it, you know, twenty eighteen, like present day. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of it being an oil company, like it would be uh, like a tech company, like Silicon Valley, right? You know? um, and uh, you know, advertising, it should be like some marketing person. Um, I didn't really recast Lauren Bacall role, but you were kind of mentioning a madman, made me think of like Christina Hendricks, who I think that would uh, kind works. of do that pretty well. The one reason I, I I have I have the perfect one for Dorothy Malone's character, um, and that is Margot Robbie. Oh, okay. You know, I think uh, she could play that to a fucking T. And uh, I'm kind of in love with Margot Robbie these days. For the uh, for the pair for the uh, for the kind of star-crossed lovers, as we uh, as we say, which by which I mean um, Mitch and uh, <laughs> what is it, Mitch and, uh, uh, and, Kyle. and Kyle, Mitch and Kyle. There, it was purely during the fight sequences at the end. I just had this like mental image that I had to share with you, and I'm going to bring back the duo. I'm going to bring back Edward Norton and Brad Pitt. Oh, you know, and I, I almost I almost picked Brad Pitt for uh for the uh, Kyle role. I, yeah, I yeah, no. mind. yeah, I mean, well, I would no, no, I I do I do uh, Brad Pitt as, as Mitch. Yeah, yeah, okay, like, because he's kind of he's kind of the bigger guy, you know, right? Mm-hmm. And then Edward Norton is sort of like the alcoholic because I could see Edward Norton totally doing the, you know, like I'm just drunk all the time. Oh, whoa, whoa, you know? wait, what what about what about uh? Uh, rounders with Edward Norton and uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, uh, Matt Damon. Matt Damon. That you know, if if we can't get if we can't get Brad Pitt, I'm sure we could get, get uh, Matt, Matt Damon. Damon. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let's let's bring back let's do Matt Damon and Ben Affleck as long as we're dreaming, right? You know, like that that works too. I mean, I, mean, I can see I, that too. I can Except see. Matt. I don't. I don't think Margot Robbie would fuck either one of those guys. So you Probably know, not. it's kind of hard to. But you know. you know, Matt Damon playing a rich dickhead. I mean, that's yeah, I believable I mean, as that's, shit. I mean, any Hollywood star playing a rich dickhead, I can sort of believe, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's get Tobey Maguire in here, but yeah, no, uh, that, that's my that's my version. That's my version. Uh, I, don't I don't know who we get to direct it. I don't know who we get to direct it. Uh, you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like honestly, I wasn't thinking too hard on directing there. Like on the spot, I was just thinking, what's what's the first thing I think about when uh, is as far as this goes, is like directorial dialogue 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 yeah. dialogue and i mean if mammoth's going to direct it he's going to rewrite it it's just kind of a given so yeah yeah i i kind of don't want to see the mammoth script i want mammoth to direct somebody else's script if we're going to get you know if we're, if we're going to get mammoth to direct it <laughs> I, I i think he would ruin this material quite honestly if you asked oh, okay. him to it because he's this you know disgustingly right-wing guy now it would it would be really terrible but actually <laughs> you know what i i would give um yeah man I, I really want a woman to direct this. I want like uh, you, you mentioned the '80s. I want like Mary Heron, who directed uh, American Psycho. Okay, I can see her kind of doing a doing a really solid job of this. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so you're not into the uh, idea of uh, closers get coffee as well as Mary Lee Headley's uh, vagina. 
<laughs> well, you know, I mean, if if you want to if you want to uh, write an Alec Baldwin as the uh, patriarch, I think we could probably that say works that too. You know, that works. You know, no, no I want to see. Uh, let's see, Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas is that Michael guy. Douglas? Would get, or well, you either use Michael Douglas or you use Alec Baldwin doing his uh, SNL Trump impersonation. Yeah. Both kind of work. I'm seeing Michael Douglas like literally doing like the Gordon Gecko, but like yeah, decrepit. You oh, know, shit. Sort, of, yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. I know. Like where he's still kind of wearing those '80s ties and like, the, mm-hmm. but you know, he's you know, he's he's in some, he's surrounded by like these like twenty somethings who are all like working for this like Silicon Valley Buzzfeed like you know firm, and, and, and he really listens to Huey Lewis in the news a lot. Like he's just that annoying. <laughs> actually, actually, I will mention I did see the Circle uh, since the last time or yeah. since the last time we talked about, um, and that's the, uh, movie from, I think like last year, which has got Emma Watson and, uh, it's based on a David Eggers novel, um, which I haven't read because it's fucking David Eggers. Um, but it's, uh, a, it's basically about like Facebook, Google, like trying to control the world sort of, it's not a very good movie, but Tom Hanks plays like the CEO of the tech company guy. Oh, like yeah. he basically is playing Steve jobs in the film. And uh, he does a pretty good job. You can sort of see him as that character, but he's he's so avuncular. I kind of like the idea of like the stick in the mud CEO who's like kind of the owner, who <laughs> then is like surrounded by like these uh, these young people who are doing all the like uh, J.K. Simmons in uh, Spider Man, you know, sort of, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Parker, bring me, bring me the photos. Yeah, yeah, we we've kind of gone off off track here, but yeah, uh, but no, that was fun. Yeah, that's fun. It's a good, yeah. it's a good thing, you know. Yeah, so uh, you know, uh, we're we're definitely gonna get in some more Do- Dorothy Malone here at some point yeah. in the future, but uh, probably some more Roger Corman. Yeah, yeah, you know, it'd be fun to do some Roger Corman. Yeah, totally agree. But until then, Daniel, tell people where they can find you on the interwebs. Uh, I am on Twitter at Daniel Lee Harper. I do have a Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash Daniel Harper. If you want to go uh, give me a buck every yeah. uh, month or so, um, I'd appreciate it. And um, yeah, that's that's probably the best. Oh, I have all my other podcasts. Uh, Wrong with Authority is the other big one. Um, mm-hmm. That's at least about history and the history they're about. And um, we do a kind of sub-thread on that because we can never just stick to a topic. But we do a sub-thread that's uh, movies made or released during the uh, presidency of Ronald Reagan. We do have an episode coming up whenever somebody uh, manages to uh, edit it, um, <laughs> which hasn't happened because I haven't uh, gotten my uh, my uh, thread onto the um, onto the chat yet, so somebody can edit it. But um, we have a Raiders of the Lost Ark episode coming oh, up uh, pretty soon. Nice. We've already recorded, which was uh, fun times, and I expect it will be a fun listen. Um, although it's mostly us just kind of giggling, so. <laughs> Right on. Of course, you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com, where you can find our Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Facebook links. Join our Facebook group. Best way to get in contact with us and let us know what's going on, and uh, you find out what's going on with this podcast. We don't quite know what's going on with this podcast in the immediate future. I have have no idea. Yeah, because next weekend I have to work, so we're going to be off again for a little bit. Well, if we want to just move into sex comedies... We, Dorothy I'm, I'm, Malone. Dorothy Malone was in the very first Beach Party movie. Oh, that's right, wasn't she? Yeah, the Frankie Avalon. Yeah, yeah. It was on Daily Motion. I watched a little bit of it just to get to the Dorothy Malone bit, and she's lovely. Okay, uh, that sounds like a good start. That sounds like a good All start. Right. We're, we're going comedies. back. I want to go comedies. back to sex comedies anyway. So yeah, yeah, shit. done. Uh, we will 
beach party and something else. Maybe joysticks. Yeah, we'll 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 be doing some some stuff with tits as well. So <laughs> yeah, there, 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 there will be some nudity coming up. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Uh, but until then, uh, Daniel, it was a pleasure, and uh, thank you everyone for listening. And, uh, and we'll, uh, R.I.P. Dorothy Malone. Yeah, yeah. Rest in peace, uh, great actress. So uh, we'll be back when we're back. Thank you guys and goodbye. Cheers. Faithless lover's kiss is written on the wind, a night of stolen bliss is written on the wind, just like the dying Promises we made are whispers in the breeze. They echo and they fade, just like our memories. Though you are gone from me.